This is the Wealth and Law Podcast, a podcast about the intersection of personal wealth and the legal landscape. We'll take a deep dive into relevant topics. We'll basically teach you what we know, and we'll engage with guests with deep expertise in their field. We hope that you'll enjoy this episode and many more episodes. So please join us on this journey as we try to bring you relevant information that is both timely and important for you to know in order to engage in this area of the world. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. It turns out that in this crazy world of ours, sometimes families fight. I know this comes as a shock to all the listeners. And when they fight, you need somebody who understands these things and how those sorts of fights get worked out, especially as it relates to family money. I should put that in parentheses here. And so that is why Julian Zibat is with me today. Julian, thank you. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Brent. I appreciate uh, you having me onto the podcast. Longtime listener, first time caller, right? <laughs> um, so yeah, a little bit about my background. As Brent alluded to, I uh, th- this is kind of my bread and butter. I'm a trust and estate litigator with the Maslin LLP law firm in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where I chair the firm's trust and estate litigation practice group and um, get to work uh, in varying degrees with our estate planning attorneys, which include uh, two other ACTEC fellows. Um, And yeah, this is work that I've been doing for the lion's share of my practice for the last 15 or so years. And I came to this practice uh, as a bit of a generalist, but uh, kind of fell down the rabbit hole and haven't looked back. So ha- happy to chat about it. These these are these are fascinating matters, and I think probably mo- most of the people listening are probably most interested in learning how to avoid these types of situations, <laughs> or if if and when they you know f- find themselves in one, uh, how how to extricate themselves as as expeditiously uh, uh, as possible. So. Happy I like to, to think of this as the uh, it's the human side. This yeah. is really the the true human side because um, no matter how brilliantly we planners draft these documents, which obviously are brilliant and perfect, and every <laughs> comma is in its place, obviously, um, yep. people still fight. But you can't, that, and you that, can, that's, no matter that's, how well I draft it, people fight. That that's right, and I, I you know I. I always, you know, whenever I'm talking to the drafting attorney in some new matter that's kind of bubbled to the surface and is now heading into court or is already in court, I mean, I, I inevitably have a conversation with that attorney where, you know, they express some some personal regret, like, oh, you know, I, you know, boy, if I'd only done X, right, I could have, you know, and I tell them, no, that's absolutely not the case. You can do everything right in terms of your draftsmanship and still have a fight because when people want to fight, they're going to fight. That's the sad reality of it. It is the sad reality. And uh, for, I guess, everybody's enlightenment listening, you can, this is true. This, the laws of physics allow this. You can have horribly drafted documents and zero fighting. These things, and you can have beautifully drafted documents and tons (laughs) of fighting. These, the laws of physics permit these seemingly opposing things to exist simultaneously. That's that's absolutely right. It's uh, although oftentimes in the the the, the former category, you, you might have somebody coming back later on to fix a problem that you right. objected to. So, you <laughs> know, I mean, it's, uh, you know, litigators get 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 the work on all ends, I guess, uh, when it comes yeah. down to it, assuming it can't be, a, you know, dealt with by way of a nonjudicial settlement agreement. So why don't you set the stage for us then uh, kind of common scenarios that 
you see that leads to families at each other's throats? Yeah, well, you know, every every situation, first off, is is unique in its own right. Um, boy, I'm going to butcher the old, you know, every happy family is the same, but every unhappy family is, is, is different. Uh, Russian author, I'm blanking on the name. It's certainly true. I mean, there are certain recurring scenarios, but the facts are always unique to each family. Um, what I what I think I'll focus on, you know, for today's purposes, really just kind of a common set of factors that we often see. Not all of these are necessarily going to be present in any given litigated matter, but they frequently they're they're at least risk factors. Uh, certainly, risk factors for any planner or financial advisor, anybody who's working with, um, you know, families and, you know, kind of the intersection of, uh, of wealth planning. Um, first of all, blended families, always, always a risk factor. Probably the most common by far scenario is the one that I refer to in shorthand fashion as the, the evil stepmom. Um, children of the first marriage versus the second wife or the third wife fourth wife. You get it. Um, you know, and oftentimes, you know, that 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 situation is particularly fraught where um, you have multiple beneficiaries, um, you know, and they, of course, have different interests, principal versus growth versus income. Um, um, you know, and so that's that's a, a common scenario that often leads to to strife, which in turn leads to litigation. Um, I would also say um, you know, kind of a close second to to the evil stepmom scenario is is the is the black sheep sibling, um, multiple kids, um, generally one of whom or one or more of whom are are closer to mom and dad, maybe take on more caretaking responsibilities. Generally, in a, a sibling that if they're not estranged is you know functionally out of the picture. Um, and, you know, lo and behold, mom and dad, as part of their estate planning documents, leave, you know, one of the children in, in charge as the primary fiduciary. And I always think, you know, I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, obviously, Brent, in these sorts of situations. I am kind of interested in the planner's, planner's view on this. But what we see in these scenarios, of course, um, and of course, I'm seeing the worst of the worst, the ones that actually make their way all the way to litigation. But, um, you know, how could mom or dad, you know, reasonably believe, given their knowledge of kind of the relationships that the kids have with one another, that it would be a good idea to place one of these children in a role where they have functional oversight and control over their siblings. And unsurprisingly, those sorts of situations, particularly where, you know, again, there's not a real relationship between the siblings, um, you know, again, fraught with peril. So that's a real common scenario. Um, other scenarios that we see as being kind of, you know, common flashpoints uh, for, for litigation, um, I would say include situations where, you know, it, it can be as simple as something um, that is not un uncommon in the context of family trusts, which is, you know, kind of there's informational asymmetries. And what I, what I mean by informational asymmetries is, you know, typically one person or set of persons has greater access to information relating to the administration of the trust or the estate than than others. And when you combine that scenario with perhaps underlying personal grievances, lack of trust, you know, that's 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 a common recipe uh, for for conflict. 
And when I'm advising fiduciaries in those scenarios, my basic advice is often quite simple, which is, look, you got nothing to hide, share the information. You might not be obligated to do so, but you can diffuse a lot of conflict by sharing information. And I realize that goes against, you know, certainly some, at least some conventional wisdom that you, you got to play your cards a bit closer to the vest. If you give give out more information than you're obligated to, you're just going to encourage a litigious party to, you know, to take issue with whatever decisions have been made. But I think more often than not, the 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 opposite outcome is is really what happens. And so those those are three of the more common scenarios. Um, certainly there are others. I mean, there's no shortage of um, there's no shortage of uh, you know drivers for for potential conflict within the familial context. True, and and oftentimes, at least from what I see, say take those three common scenarios. There are other factors and that get layered on top of it that can exacerbate yeah. the existence of that. So you could have a, a particular type of family asset that causes consternation. You could have uh, you were talking about like the information. You could have uh, also uh, asymmetry in terms of the use of assets or the use of income from assets that then causes strife when you layer it on top of these things. I mean, all of those yeah. things are they, they when added to the right volatility, they can explode. Yeah, I mean, I think you know the common common thread in all of these scenarios. I mean, you're absolutely right, Brent. I mean, there there are any number of other scenarios that can result, but I think one of the common threads certainly is some level of dysfunctionality within the family itself. And, you know, again, I when I meet with clients for the first time, these people come in and we're seated across the conference room table from one another, I mean, present very, very normally. Again, you know, these are these are people that uh, that you're probably friends with, that you have, you know, <laughs> they, you, you run across every day in everyday life and there's nothing at all unusual. But then you start peeling away what I call, you know, it really is like the layers of the onion and you kind of get down. Oh, wait a second. But wait, there's more. <laughs> right. So yes, I mean, there, there's generally, you know, kind of a an element of distrust um, based on, you know, generally speaking, years and years of past history within these familial relationships that 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 kind of layers onto these. And you're right, you know, by itself, it's it's not enough. But you know, when coupled with some of these other factors that we've been talking about, that can that can in turn become Come a flashpoint. I, I actually think one of the other factors. I think we're somewhat dancing around it, but mm-hmm. sometimes because oftentimes in these scenarios we're talking about a family where there's been a, a death, so one personality in the family right has been remo- removed from the relationships. And I think one of the things that then can cause these sorts of flashpoints is that the people who are in the picture now are actually having more interaction with each other than they used to have. And it's that increased interaction that either exacerbates existing frictions or creates (laughs) new frictions. And then that leads to the fighting. You know what I mean? Like where you could have a a, a strong character who dies and now all of a sudden everybody got, you know, everybody got along before and now they don't. Let's face it. I mean, the, you, you're absolutely right. Oftentimes, it's either the the matriarch or the patriarch of the family that's passed, and you know who had kind of functionally kept the peace, maybe maybe kept people at arm's length from one another. And you're right. Now, all of a sudden, cousins are dealing with one another, probably haven't spoken in decades. You know, certainly years. 
siblings, maybe, you know, several of whom are not particularly close with one another and functionally have no relationship other than kind of indirectly through mom or dad. And you're right. It's often the peacemaker in the family who's no longer around. And, and, you know, and, and, you know, let's also not discount the impact of grief, right? I mean, that's, that, that, that's functionally a part of it as well. Anger, misdirected anger can often be part of the grieving process. And so when I'm working with clients in this space, particularly if the loss is relatively recent, um, that's something I'm always incredibly mindful of. You're dealing with grieving individuals and everybody has a different way of expressing it. And sometimes it comes out maybe not in the most pro-social <laughs> forms. That's a nice way to put it. That's yeah, a very yeah. Midwest way to put that. Julia. You know, th- th- thank you. Yes, <laughs> that, that that's probably right. <laughs> not pro-social. <laughs> For not pro-social, yeah. So let's counterproductive. <laughs> yeah. So okay. So let's say uh, one of these families they're fighting. Let's let's assume it's uh, black sheep, right? Uh, black yeah. sheep scenario. You've got mm-hmm. mom or dad have died. The siblings now are fighting. What tends to be for you the ways that those fights evolve or can and can sort of evolve? And what does it actually mean? Like, how do you tell your clients when they come in? You're talking about they're sitting across the conference room table. They're explaining to you how terrible brother or sister are. How do you describe to them? Look, this is where this could go. Yeah, well, I, I think as a litigator, you have to be you have to be upfront with clients because oftentimes by the time the client has found their way to the litigator's office they're hot to trot they're ready to go into court guns blazing they they want they're 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 out for blood in some fashion or they're responding of course to a, a family member who's who's out for blood and um i i think as advisors as counselors you know i I, I, I love being a passionate advocate. I love fighting for my clients in court, but I also realize that's only part of my role and responsibility as a, as a litigator of these sorts of, these sorts of disputes. I mean, I really do spend a lot of time in those initial meetings kind of laying out for the client, here's what this is going to look like, you know, in terms of timeline, in terms of, you know, kind of time commitment, emotional stress, financial expense, you know, generally try to walk through kind of a budgeting exercise, you know, to the extent we can kind of foresee what's coming down the track. It's obviously easier once uh, once there's a filed piece of litigation because you know what the issues are going to be and what the scope is and you can kind of get a better handle for what you're looking at. But I, I always want, I'm not a big fan of leading clients down the primrose path when it comes to litigation. And I, I want them to be understanding that very few people are, are, you know, acting in a completely rational mindset when it comes to litigation. I mean, it's, you know, it, it just doesn't happen. It doesn't happen in business disputes, and it certainly doesn't happen in familial disputes such as these. So sitting down over a series of conversations, having that sort of discussion, laying out for them what it's going to look like, and also exploring, you know, kind of whether there are potential off ramps, right? And sometimes the answer is there's not, but there's, you know, I, I always at least have to ask the question, have you had discussions, um, you know, is there, a, you know, ability to sit down in the same room as a family family meeting of some sort, a possibility? 
I mean, oftentimes I'll ask them first, you know, do you want to ever have Thanksgiving dinner with these folks <laughs> on the other side again? And how they answer that question is going to kind of inform me whether whether a family meeting is, is even on the table. But early mediation, I mean, there are some alternatives. They're not going to be appropriate in every instance, though. And so, you know, you kind of have to a lot of what I'm doing is 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 listening and and kind of, you know, again, as much as possible, advising the clients about, okay, here's what this is going to look like. So, you know, I don't want any client to get six, nine, 12 months down the road and say, you never told me <laughs> that it was going to be like right. this. Um, you know, even, even more so of litigation, just because it is, everything is intensified in litigation. Well, and everything is uncertain as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I, I like I'm to sure say you, the only certainty is the uncertainty of the litigation process. Yeah, I yeah, that's been my experience, too. And I, I'm sure you have similar conversations with clients where they ask you something along the lines, paraphrasing, of course. Uh, well, once the judge sees us, they'll just obviously they'll agree with us. Right. Yes. <laughs> the true believers. Yeah. yeah. No. And, and and and, you know. To more or less of an extent, all all clients have have an aspect, right? They they've got a a narrative or a version of events that they first of all, you as their counsel need to kind of you know accept and and, and express some some level of enthusiasm about. One of the challenges, of course, is getting clients to understand that you know first of all the the truth to the extent the truth can even be ascertained through a through a litigated set of proceedings is going to be far more complicated than one one party's version of events um and one of the challenges that we face as litigators is is telling our clients in a nice way in a way that doesn't suggest that we're you know simply buying what the other side is trying to sell but kind of, you know, playing devil's advocate, say, look, you know, a neutral fact finder could see this particular fact issue differently than what you laid out. And those can be really hard conversations because sometimes, you you know, again, depending on where your client is emotionally, they can be so wrapped up in kind of this, this is what happened. This is what I know mom or dad would have wanted. The number of times I've heard that expression, of course, I can... <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's hard. It's hard, you know, playing, you know, kind of, you know, it's hard, you know, kind of presenting that in a way that they will listen to you and kind of understand it. And it's, it's something that, you know, kind of over the course of my career, I feel like I've, I've gotten better at doing, but it's still hard because they don't want to hear it. Right. And especially at the outset, when, when you're just meeting these people for the first time and really establishing kind of the basic rapport, I mean, my, my advice to anyone in those situations, you know, first you have to get your client to trust you. And again, it's a little bit different for us as litigators than it is for, for, for you as a planner, say, where you're working with these clients over a period of time, right? And you've established that trusted advisor relationship. Oftentimes, client comes in, this is the first time they've ever met me. You know, they may have heard good things. They might have gotten a referral, you know, talk to Julian. He's great to work with what have you, but they don't know me. We have no relationship with one another. Getting client to trust you and to hear the bad news or the potential bad news from, from a lawyer that they've just met is, you know, that's a, that can be a little bit of a challenging uh, conversation. So I really focus kind of on developing the rapport. I'm not going to be blowing smoke 
Right. <laughs> Though, you know, it, you don't want to feed them false hope. If, you're, if your assessment of the, the facts and the law are such that, boy, you know, they really should be finding their way to a settlement off ramp as quickly as possible, let's say. You know, I'm not going to be telling them, let's go into court and fight this out, right? But, you know, in terms of how I bring them to that, it's you got to first establish enough rapport that 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 the relationship can withstand the weight of what you have to eventually burden them with. Right. Let's say that somebody comes to you and evil brother or sister has already done the thing and they have already filed something in court. Is that does that change the conversation? Well, yeah, in the sense that, um, you know, you don't have a decision to make about whether to go to court or not. Um, That's sad. Even when there's a uh, a court filing, there's still there's still the possibility for for an early off ramp if 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 that's of mutual interest. And what I'll say about that is, you know, early early settlement discussions can be beneficial, but I think the there there's a couple things that need to be in place in order for that to to bear a reasonable chance of of success first of all i think there needs to be enough information um that's been shared between and amongst the parties such that you can agree on a relatively basic set of facts right i mean if the issues are framed such that there's agreement as to what the issues are that's a prerequisite. The other prerequisite is a degree of motivation. And sometimes parties just need to, you know, feel like they've had their proverbial day in court. They need to go fight for a little bit. They're just not ready. And if you don't have, you know, if one or the other of the parties, you know, again, and these can be multilateral uh, pieces of litigation, of course, with multiple parties. But, you know, again, if you're, you know, you, you have to have the necessary parties be sufficiently motivated for that sort of early discussion to bear some fruit. I mean, if you, if you, if you pursue that, it can actually set things back. And I, 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 I've seen this happen where an early mediation um, ends up prolonging the fight because the parties weren't ready at that stage. And then you've already played the mediation card and, you know, that there's a lot of inertia following an unsuccessful mediation that, you know, oh, I don't want to go back and, you know, we spent all day in a conference room and that mediator didn't do anything. And, you know, I just don't think that's, that's worthwhile, right? It's going to take a lot of effort to get those parties back to where they were at the outset. So I think sometimes, I mean, there's a degree of nuance in terms of whether to push for that sort of off, early off ramp. Yeah, it's interesting you, you, you mentioned uh, some people needing to fight a little bit before they'll come to their senses. And you mentioned earlier the, the emotions that are involved and the fact yeah. that parties are not always acting reasonably or rationally. Yeah, they rarely, if ever, are, <laughs> in my opinion. <laughs> I, I think of it as some uh, are better at applying a veneer of rationality to their decision making process. But let's yeah, I, I, I just the, the uh, yeah. I, I think it's yeah, a, there's it's a fable. underlying yeah. emotion involved. So you, you think that in in some cases people sort of do need to get litigation weary and worn down a little bit by the the litigation and the process of the litigation before they'll cool off. I I, I think it's certainly not true for for all, but certainly for yeah, some that's undoubtedly right. the case. Um, I mean because you can tell them and as you know. I've, 
mentioned before, I really, at least with the clients that I work with, try to be very upfront. If there's an option, right, you know, they're not yet in a court proceeding, but they're kind of heading in that direction. Okay, let's let's talk about what that looks like and let's talk about the expense. Let's talk about, you know, kind of the time commitment and the emotional stress and anxiety that's going to come along with that. And you really want to tie up the next, you know, year, year and a half of your life fighting with your brother. You know, is that something you really want to commit to? Um, the answer may well be yes. And I, that's great. I love it when the answer is yes. That, that means I get to do what I enjoy doing. But, you know, I also don't want, you know, you know, set people up for, you know, something that they're not prepared for. Right. Um, I do think, though, for a number of people telling them, you know, it's going to be like this, you know, A, B and C. They just don't or, or, or can't fundamentally appreciate it in, in, until they've gotten there, until they've experienced it, you know, and that kind of viscerally brings brings home the reality um, for for a certain subset of, of clients. Yeah, it's yeah, I I agree. I think clients have a hard time understanding how messy the process can be, how unclear the truth, as you were mentioning, can be yeah. once you get into the process and also how long but final the process can be, meaning yeah. it can last a long time. In the end, there will be a final decision, but it could take a very long time to get there. Yeah. The other thing that I, I, I think people, you know, kind of on the on the back end aren't prepared for is the, the you're right, is the finality of it. All of a sudden, you've spent you know a year and a half fighting down in the trenches, spending a lot of time on the phone or in meetings with your attorneys. You've gone to trial. You spent a lot of time getting ready and 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 sitting in the courtroom, you know, through a week long or two week long trial. I mean, there's just a lot of you know that goes into it. And then all of a sudden, you get the written order, and you know, it's over. And I think. <laughs> For some clients, there's, a, you know, as well as for some lawyers, I mean, there's kind of a post-trial, post, you know, post-litigation hangover. And they're so yeah. used to, you know, like I spent the last year and a half of my life fighting this. And now, now what do I do? You know, like, you see that. I, I see it all the time with clients. And it, mm-hmm. it's, it's, you know, that that's something that I don't think anybody would ever you know, at the outset, if you haven't been through litigation of some some form before that you would necessarily expect to be the case. Yeah, it's almost it, almost akin, almost akin. I want to make it really clear. I'm not saying these are equivalents, but it's sure. almost akin if you've been in a very difficult course in, say, college mm-hmm. and you work and work and work and work and work all year long or all semester long. And then you finally take that big final and you're done yep. and you get your grade and that's it. It's yeah. over. Yeah. And there's no appealing it. There's yep. no going back. Yep. What's done is done. And exactly. all the emotions spent is spent. It's yeah. over. I know. Well, and the, the fact that, you know, a fact finder gets to make the final say, I think, is also incredibly difficult, even though that's unquestionably the whole point of the process. Right. right. You know, you can't resolve this on your own. So we're going to have this third party come in and tell, you know, make make an up or down decision, make. You know, and I, I often discuss that, of course, with, with clients and say that, you know, this is one reason that settlement should be on your radar, even if you're saying there's not, you know, I, I, there's no way in a million years I'd ever agree to settle with my brother or my cousin or my stepmom. Like, this is, this is your own agency we're talking about. At the end of the day, 
I think it's incredibly disconcerting. I mean, it's great when, you know, the judge comes out and finds in your, in your favor and you feel validated by that, but consider the emotional toll if you get the judge who isn't buying <laughs> your, your narrative, you know, and what, what, what impact is that going to have? And fundamentally, you're putting this decision in somebody else's hands. Wouldn't you much rather exert some degree of control over the outcome, you know, is at the end of the day, isn't that going to, doesn't that hold some value to you? So those, these are conversations that we have with, right. with clients as we're considering the, the options, the range of options that exist. Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk about that just a little bit in terms yeah. of outcomes. So you mentioned trial, right? You could have a trial mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, the, and it could be decided by a judge or a jury, depending yep. on the case. Okay. Yep. So certainly in that case, in that option, somebody else who is not you is going to make the decision. What about uh, mediation? You mentioned that. Maybe explain that for people and yeah, explain how that's different yeah. from arbitration, because I think a lot of people mistake there, the two for you're, each other. Brent, you're absolutely right. And uh, I apologize for not defining what I was uh, talking about earlier. But yes, mediation and arbitration are two different forms of alternative dispute resolution or ADR. Um Mediation, as I was using the term, generally refers to a process that I liken to shuttle diplomacy. You essentially are engaging the services of a qualified neutral third party, oftentimes a respected local judge, retired local judge or retired or, you know, practitioner who's kind of winding winding down their practice, but have, you know, years and years of experience to draw on. And you're paying that person to come in and essentially facilitate a settlement discussion. Um, Now, you know, over the past three or four years, at least locally in in Minnesota, you know, traditionally it always been done in person. You're in somebody's conference room space. Generally speaking, the parties are broken out into separate rooms, although some mediators like to do kind of plenary sessions where they look everybody in the eye, you know, sitting across the table from one another. But generally speaking, you know, you're in your room with your client, opposing counsels in their room with their client, and the mediator's kind of shuttling back and forth. And, you know, the advantage of this, this approach is, first of all, you know, by agreeing to mediation, everybody's agreeing, you know, to make a good faith effort to broach you know, a a settlement of whatever the issues are that are in dispute. And everybody's agreed to set aside an entire day for that purpose. And I think psychologically, that encourages people to get to a different headspace than they perhaps have been, you know, otherwise in the litigation process. Because litigation, of course, when you're down in the trenches is all about, you know, winning winning the battles and ultimately, hopefully winning the war. And that's kind of the mindset, both of the client as well as the attorney. So you kind of set that aside for an entire day and really kind of know, let's, let's figure out if, you know, our, you know, the party's respective settlement and Venn diagrams overlap with one another. And if we can get to that elusive compromise. And I think as the, uh, the day progresses, um, I always like to joke, nothing, nothing important happens in any mediation until until after three o'clock in the afternoon. And it really does seem that way. There are plenty of mediations fall apart well before three o'clock, but if you're still talking at three o'clock, that's a good sign. It's a good sign that you're at least, you know, kind of narrowing the gap that that exists between the respective parties. Um, And I do think there's kind of this psychological pressure that builds over the course of the day, which is, I think everybody 
wants to be able to say to themselves at the end of the day, you know what, we, we put our best foot forward, you know, our time was well spent. And, you know, if, if you don't really get to that, you know, again, that kind of forces parties that may have been reluctant otherwise to, to even contemplate moving kind of off of their number or off their settlement demand to do that. Because again, there's this desire to be able to kind of look yourself in the mirror at the end of the day and say, Hey, we, we did our best, you know, and it, yeah. it was either good enough to get a deal done or, Hey, at least we tried. Right. So and I got, I got something for that day. I spent exactly. in room listening to some old judge. Tell me what, Oh what yeah. Share, share war stories and, you know, listen to, you know, me complain about my brother and yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and, and worse yet, you know, I'm not only paying for my attorney's time, I'm also paying for half of the mediator's time. And oh, guess yeah. what? He's, you know, he's charging a nice hourly rate as well. So that's mediation. Now media, you know, media, there are, there are other forms of mediation. So that's a bit simplistic, but I'd say, you know, 90 to 95% of the time, at least in trust in a state litigation, the sort that I handle here in Minnesota, that's what it looks like. Arbitration is different than that. Arbitration is more akin to a private court proceeding. And um, arbitration has has its utility, but it's it's less a settlement device than a, a an alternative to a publicly filed court action. So again, you know, that's probably a topic for a different day. I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole. But yes, a lot of people mistake arbitration and mediation. Mediation far and away is is the form of ADR that that that's um, more commonly used, particularly in the settlement context to, again, to get kind of parties off of their mark and thinking about areas where there might be some achievable compromise in these types yeah. of disputes. Yeah, it seems like in my mind, arbitration is a fairly drastic choice because somewhat like trial, at the end, it will have some finality. The finality will be in the hands of a third party you do not control. And in fact, it will probably be on an accelerated pace. And you might not even get to say all the things you could have said in trial. You might not be able to present all the evidence you would have wanted to present in trial. So you're you're squeezing down the timeline, you're squeezing down the information yeah. being shared, and then you're putting the decision in the hand of a third party. Absolutely. I mean, it's just like court in, in that latter sense, but you're right. Um, arbitration can look dramatically different in terms of its details, um, in terms of how the presentation of evidence occurs, in terms of the scope, in terms of the timeline. Uh, I like to say with arbitration, the devil's in the details. I mean, the party, you know, arbitration is a creature of contract. Um, so, you know, where the parties have have kind of carefully thought through those issues, you can exercise a lot of control over the process. And that might ultimately be to 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 either you or, or your client's benefit. But where those kind of restrictions or limitations are being imposed upon your client, it may, you know, it may, may feel quite different, right? So mm -hmm. it can be a good thing, it can be a bad thing. Unquestionably, the, the, one, the one advantage that arbitration has over litigation in all instances is that it's completely private. So where you're dealing with a family or a client that is particularly sensitive to publicity, doesn't want their dirty laundry being aired, you know, in a series of public court filings. You know, the, 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 there may be some advantage to arbitration, um, 
you know, but again, it sort of depends, you know, some, those pluses and minuses otherwise can, can cut a couple of different ways. And it really right. sort of depends on what, what your client's objectives are. But I'd say it's not a typically, in, in most instances, that's not a real typical, I've had a couple of arbitrated matters, but it's far and away the exception. I'd say where it's useful, though, is actually in the context of settlement agreements. Um, I always include an arbitration provision in all my settlement agreements, just because I've seen on any number of occasions a party get cold feet afterwards, right? After signing maybe a, a term sheet at the mediation itself, and then they, you know, go go home, they sleep on it, and they wake up and say, you know, why did I ever agree to that? I want to keep fighting. You know, again, you know, outside of kind of the uh, the, the psychological compulsion, <laughs> as I was referring to it, they they think better of, of of the decision they made the day before. So for that reason, having a you know kind of a binding arbitration provision, so you're not stuck, you know, having to go into court and establish, prove up the fact that there was a binding contract, in this case, a binding settlement, and you know, getting a hearing date that may be months out on the court's calendar to do that. I mean, oftentimes, you know, having the mediator serve as the arbitrator and have all parties agree to that, you know, can be a real disincentive to that sort of post-settlement behavior. So that's where I'd say, you know, at least in the context of my practice, Brent, I see arbitration. But by and large, you know, kind of kind of the the interesting intellectual conversation that's cropped up over maybe the last 10 years with the decision out of the Texas Supreme Court in Rochelle about the enforceability of mandatory arbitration clauses in in, a, in estate planning instruments. It's it's really not all that common, you know. It may it, that may change at some point, but I'm not I'm not seeing a lot of that, at least as right. part of my practice. We had a somewhat similar case on a I don't know maybe 15 years ago in our state that struck down an arbitration clause in a trust. Uh, as as not enforceable to your point because there's creatures of contracts and trusts in our state are clearly not contracts by law and then we changed our trust code to allow them and <laughs> and I don't see that's right I I, see, I, yeah I mean I think there's a handful maybe five states including Arizona where there there's been a statute adopted to allow for their enforcement I know Ohio also has a similar provision Minnesota it's an open issue. So for that reason, I don't see a lot of planners including those yeah. types of provisions within their I still documents. Don't. I yeah. still don't. Yeah, I yeah. still don't. There are some fairly well-known local uh, firms, we'll say that that draft very long trusts as a matter of course that have uh, fulsome clauses, mm-hmm. penalty clauses, which oh, is sure. another topic. Yep. Fulsome Interim, penalty clauses yeah, no and uh, ADR clauses, but I'd say as a whole. It has not caught on. I think for all the reasons that you're describing, that yeah. to paint yourself into that corner yeah. up front is to prejudge the dispute uh, because you don't know if that's the right outcome. Yeah, I mean, parties, of course, are always free to, you know, prior to running off to court, you know, enter into a private arbitration agreement, right? right. Occasionally that happens. I, I would say it's a it's a relative rarity, but that's that's another option. And again, that at least allows the parties and their respective counsel to kind of size up the options, right? And, you know, again, maybe there's some particular reason, you know, whether it be an issue of administration, you know, that we need a 
a timely and prompt decision and the courts are so backlogged in a particular jurisdiction that they know they're not going to get an answer from the courts for over, you know, two, three years, maybe. <laughs> but again, you know, you can you could see the advantages of, of, of arbitration. But I think that that at least allows the parties, you know, some some agency, obviously, to make their own decision, make the decision that, yes, arbitration is going to be the appropriate uh, forum for resolving this particular familial uh, dispute. Yeah. Well, as people can probably tell by this conversation, this is a very meaty topic. There are many layers to it, which we will not be able to cover, but I, (laughs) (laughs) not today anyways. We're uh, we're just scratching the surface. Just (laughs) scratching the surface. Yeah. Well, Julian, I really appreciate your time and expertise on this. What, What would be the way for people to connect with you if they're attempting to connect with you? Well, uh, my uh, my email address uh, is probably the the best way to reach out. I'm, uh, it's just my first name, Julian, uh, period, last name, Zebot, Z-E-B-O-T, at Maslin, which is M-A-S-L-O-N dot com. Certainly, you know, I'll extend that invitation to anyone who has interest in topics that we've been talking about on today's podcast. I'm more than happy to to chat with people and, you know, serve as a sounding board whether you're in litigation, headed to litigation, or just simply trying to avoid it altogether, I'm I'm more than happy to provide you know any insight or assistance that I can. So thanks for having me on the the podcast today, Brent. Uh, you're, you're doing a great job. I'm happy to have, you know maybe shared a few thoughts uh, about litigation and and ways to resolve it. But uh, it's a uh, as you as you point out a much much broader involved topic. <laughs> Very much so. Yes. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And we'll all include all that uh, contact information, of course, in the show notes. And people can look there and they can find you there or Google you or do whatever yep. it is that people do to try to find information. That's right. On the, internet. the internet internet is a it's a wonderful and scary place. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, thank you. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thank you. you. Appreciate it. Thanks again. Hey, listeners, thanks again for joining me on the podcast. It's fun to do it for you. If you're enjoying it, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to my blog at wealthandlaw.com and follow me on social media at wealthandlaw. I'll see you there.